And you're welcome. You're, uh, hello and welcome. You're listening to <laughs> The Green Majority. You're welcome. Let's just start with, with you're welcome. You're listening to <laughs> The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as with our extraterrestrial, interterrestrial, and podcast listeners all grouped into mm. one fabulous group. Mm. Um, <laughs> Great group. I decided to, uh, I wanted to do my own intro today because I'm on a quest of my own uh, to not talk any more than absolutely necessary. Uh-huh. Um, so you're hearing from me now, and uh, I'll only try and interrupt if it's really What important. if you have to refute my opinions about the demons dwelling at the center of the earth? Well, that's why I'm saving myself for that. Oh, okay. So uh, please, uh, no more me. Stefan, take it away. Thank you so much, Saren. Uh, so yes, we're in studio. I'm um, Stefan Hostetter with Dave Hostetter, and Saren Kaster is teching and jumping in to refute uh, Dave's inevitable opinions about the demons in the center of the earth. Uh, welcome to the Green Majority. We'll have Lauren Latour in the middle section joining us. And uh, as, as a quick sort of uh, overarching uh, little thing here, a, a report came out earlier this uh, earlier this week, I believe, mm. uh, from Canada Land in regards to the sort of the sort of idea and the argument towards a shift uh, from post media to the to the to the right. Uh, it was a sort mm. of a, a story about sort of the uh, the sort of edict that came from above on and in, in, in to sort of push their their really wide ranging set of news uh, f- to the right and and in sort of how this was sort of rippling through the through the organization and I think that's important to highlight especially because uh, as we as we move forward in in the sort of conversation around climate change uh, the fight is becoming uh, increasingly one about narrative you know especially as the the facts of the matter um, are at least fewer and fewer mainstream people are really willing to sort of fight the facts of climate change there still obviously remain many uh, as our Facebook feed will prove any given day but the most people uh, I think the facts have since in some ways been sort of settled and so the and so the change becomes how one sort of fights over narrative or how the narrative of this of this experience uh, is it plays out mm-hmm. and and, and for those of us uh, who you know, believe in climate justice, it's sort of a battle on two fronts. You know, one side is the case for action, you know, highlighting uh, the stark uh, and often dark reality that faces the world today and the need for an overwhelming response. You know, this kind of messaging is necessary with the soft denialism that we experience uh, from anyone who thinks that they can still have pipelines while meeting 1.5 degrees global warming. You know, that when that's this quote unquote left of center argument, um, we have some work to do. Uh, but on the other side is the case uh, for justice, um, as the rise of the ecological argument for fascism uh, plays on the fear generated by the climate reality, uh, but merges into a drive to keep others down in order to keep oneself as comfortable as possible. And we'll sort of cover that a bit later. But it's it's this sort of, these are the two sides, and the needle that we must thread is, is that the world is in danger and the reality is scary, uh, but we must come together in this moment uh, and lift us all. Uh, the tide is quite literally rising, um, and we must ensure that no boats are swept away in these new currents. And so, the so we'll start off with some uh, a sort of a, a, a news summary of climate change throughout the space, uh, starting with Dave. Mm. Thank you. I'll just uh, I'll just anchor myself uh, so I don't get swept away in these currents. <laughs> okay. So uh, we know that. Uh, global sea level rise, speaking of being swept away by currents, is accelerating. We uh, used to think this acceleration only started in the 1990s, 
but a new study has come out showing that it actually began accelerating in the 1960s. An implication from the study is that as the oceans warm, the acceleration is expected to increase. Thus, we have people talking about using the word exponential hmm. in, uh, in regards to such things. I mean, who knows, but the acceleration is increasing. Yes. Uh, ice climatologist uh, Jason Box told Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! this week, quote, uh, the continents are heating up about twice as fast as the global temperature, just like the Arctic is heating twice as fast as the global temperature. The continents are drying. This is undermining food security. We are seeing more drought, and uh, that will be a more immediate consequence of enhanced uh, greenhouse gas effect. The migration of people that lose their food and water security, and that effect being disruptive for political systems as these people seek a better livelihood, reluctantly leaving their homes and going elsewhere, I'm convinced that that will be a more immediate consequence of elevated greenhouse gas effect. Sea level rise is an urgent, huge issue, which ultimately will force uh, really uncountable people, numbers of people, to forfeit their land in coastal areas that we cannot justify or afford to build sea defenses. And those displaced people will add on top of food refugees and drought refugees, which we're already seeing today. The World Resources Institute has also put out new data as well, uh, recently showing how almost 25% of the global population is facing a water crisis. These are areas where 80% of total water supply is used every year, which means that even a relatively weak dry spell could be disastrous. This is currently happening to 44 countries, including India, Mexico, and Saudi Arabia. The countries highest on the list are all in the Middle East, and the rest are mostly African, European, and South Asian. And since we've just gone through the warmest April, May, June, and July months on record, it seems likely that dry spells will occur. Meanwhile, the Bad River Band, a Chippewa indigenous tribe in Wisconsin, is trying to protect their water, having filed suit in late July to remove Enbridge's Line 5 from their territory. They argue that not only has the pipeline's easement expired, that's the right-of-way through private land, uh, but the land around it is being eroded by the river, itching ever closer to the complete exposure of the pipe, which could cause it to break from the flowing water and spill into their waterways. Phil McKenna for Inside Climate News reports that the lawsuit states, quote, while the risk of a rupture or leak in Love Line 5 is significant along the entire reservation corridor, the circumstances just east of the location where the pipeline currently passes beneath the Bad River portend a looming disaster. Enbridge stated, quote, Enbridge has been in good faith negotiations with the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Tribe regarding these easements since 2013. The vast majority of Enbridge's right-of-way through the Bad River Reservation is covered by either perpetual easements on private land or a 50-year agreement between Enbridge and the band, which does not expire until 2043. The tribe is calling the situation a perpetual dance with danger. The pipeline is part of Canada's largest oil export system. The, I'm somewhat confused in that... The argument from Enbridge in this case is that some that is that a vast majority of Enbridge's right of way is mm. is covered. When on earth does that ever matter? <laughs> at, at, I just don't entirely understand the argument mm. of ninety five percent of what I'm doing is totally allowed. <laughs> Why can't I do everything? You can't assume me for you can't sue me for assault, Stefan. 
the vast majority of your body is still intact. <laughs> exactly. Like it, it, it's one of those arguments that only works um, f- if you are the powerful uh, against the powerless, right? It's, yeah. it's like there's no version of this argument, you know, where it's, it's like it's not like the United States could just invade BC and be like, look, we own a vast percentage of Canada still exists. You know, what are you guys talking about? We, we only took a part of Canada. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's, 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 a, it's an argument that only works if you presume that, that they get to keep doing things. Yeah, not only that, it's like we don't care if the line breaks or we right. don't care if it's about to break. Uh, yeah. And that's pretty much that. Yeah, well, yeah. It, 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 it harkens back to some of the some of the many other versions of the same kind of conversation in which these uh, in which these large companies are, are, are basically saying that, you know, that we are very that we are ha- we have just looked into this and we are comfortable with the risk that we are taking. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, if this pipeline bursts, it's your water that will no longer be usable, but we are comfortable with the risks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a vast majority of it is okay. It's, 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 it, it, is, it is a, you know, to talk about, like, to talk about these type of organizations as if, like, they're in good faith negotiations in 2013. Okay, well, if have you solved the problem? If not, then the good faith negotiation would be you then eventually give up and leave. That's the, the, like, if you're in good faith negotiations, that means when the other side backs away, you stop doing the thing. That's what a good faith negotiation means. It cannot be in good faith if the presumed continuation of your pipeline is the default and anything else is not allowed. That's not good faith. That's, that's the definition of not good faith. Sorry, sorry. Well, and if you, if you go to a company and say, hey, can you, like a single company, and you say, maybe you protest them, maybe you do whatever, right? You get their attention, you say, get, get out them on Twitter, say, hey, uh, you know, your, your behavior on X area is poor. Uh, we want you to improve. Well, what are they going to say? I mean, they're going to say a bunch of fluff, and then essentially they're going to say, you know, we'd love to do that, but our hands are tied because the market forces X, Y, Z. If we do that, we'll put ourselves out of business because nobody else will, yada, yada, right? We've all heard it a hundred thousand times. And to a certain extent, that's true. But here's the thing. What happens when you go and have the same conversation with a politician? Well, what are you supposed to do? Our hands are tied. The companies are all going to go out of business if we do anything. So apparently nobody's in charge. Yeah, right. Apparently nobody's in charge. So uh, either, you know, either the politicians are in charge or they're not. Right. Like make up your mind. Yeah, it is. We can't control the people who are in charge because they're merely the shareholders. Yes, right. Exactly. Ah, the the mysterious shareholders who (laughs) cannot be named and are protected with something called fiduciary responsibility. We have a legal responsibility to maximize profit. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So the only, so the max, the only thing we can do is adjust the maximum, right? That's what government regulation is. Adjusting uh, ranges of things, minimums and maximums. You must pay a minimum wage. Uh, You can work someone, but not until death, you know, minimums and maximums is basically what the government is in the business of doing is, is measuring those guidelines. Go to them and say, ah, our hands are tied. Sorry. What are we going to do? Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, anyways. So come on, Enbridge. That's my, that's my, like, be better. But uh, let's move on to Trump. So uh, 22 states, six cities, and Washington, D.C. are taking the Trump administration to court over their planned axing of emissions regulations for coal plants. These regulations themselves never took effect after Obama introduced them due to legal challenges. Uh, And many of us have probably heard that Trump has just begun to allow regulators to make economic considerations when deciding whether a species should be considered endangered. The administration must not have been told 
that other species are integral to the ecosystems that human beings require to survive. I love that. There, some every once in a while, you get some things that are just, just comically ridiculous, and and I think the idea that economic considerations can be a part of whether or not a species is considered in like, oh, did you know that the dodo is not extinct because uh, because uh, because it was making a lot of money destroying its habitat. It's, just, it's 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 still around. It's uh, just we kept increasing the amount of money uh, and we made, and uh, we still have these animals. Like that's just, that's it's 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 playing word games and yeah. capitalist weirdness. The term with- economic considerations is uh, a strange jargon term for just masking the fact that you'll do whatever you want. Yeah, that the idea that if the animal that is endangered is near a untapped oil reserve that you're just going to kill that. That's basically what that is. That's like if there's enough money you can make by destroying this animal, then go for it. Is is literally the argument here. Um, you know, and it's it's what yeah, it's it's it will not save our biodiversity loss everyone. That there's no amount of economic consideration that will bring an extinct creature back. Like, that's just not happening. Uh, but anyways, we got one more story you want to get to. Let's get to it. Mia Rabson, reporting for the Canadian Press, has penned an article regarding the Canadian implications of a recent IPCC report on agriculture and food supply. The report concludes that Canada will face food shortages if we surpass 2 degrees Celsius of global warming. And while this 2 degrees Celsius or even 1.5 degrees have become the limiting symbols of our collective ambition, it must be stated that expert reports from even five years ago were saying that we had already virtually locked ourselves in to surpassing 2 degrees. And yet here we still are, harking on about the need to remain at 2 degrees or below. As climate change policy expert David Victor put it to NBC back in 2014, quote, There is no scenario in which any accord that's realistic on this planet is going to get us to two degrees because the trajectory that uh, emissions are on right now is way above two degrees, end quote. In any case, at two degrees, we're looking at major food risk worldwide with predictable drops in supply even as the world population continues to grow. Of course, we already waste 30% of food production globally, so it's conceivable that we could fill that gap and more just by reducing waste. Robson quotes a co-author of the recent report as saying, quote, What this report is trying to do is to lay out the consequences of inaction, but also then highlight the many opportunities we have for action and the co-benefits this has for livelihoods for water. The, sorry, just really quickly. You know what's weird? You know what's weird? I want to say this earlier. When was the last time you heard any politician on the left, even the ones that claim to really care about climate change, actually say any of those things? What the consequences of not acting is? I've never heard it. Yeah, and I think the so to to sort of pull back these three stories back into the sort of conversation about about narrative, um, and in about sort of how we talk about these types of things, is is I, I want a very quick a quick story. I was at a panel a couple of years ago. And I, w- I was moderating this panel, and it included a bunch of people who are all doing really good work on climate change. And, and one of them was, was understanding the uh, impacts on, uh, on Peel region. He worked for the government of Peel region um, of some nature, which is a region, for those of you not Toronto-based residents, it's a region outside of, outside of the city. And, 
uh, he had done a whole bunch of research and, and has sort of looked at all the different uh, economic outcomes of, of, of things. And, and one of the outcomes was sort of what the, I believe this, the, the question is, what was the GDP impact of, on Peel region uh, for four degrees of warming? And I remember just being like, and he had some, it was like some negative number. It was like negative 5% or something like that. And it was like, oh, here's what's going to happen. Negative 5% what? That the, the, the people would receive a, a decrease of GDP by about 5% oh, was the estimate. And I remember just thinking, four degrees of global warming absolutely decimates our f- global food system. No one is going to care about Peel region in four degree warming world. It's just not going to matter. Like it, it, it was this sort of weird, he was sort I felt like he was, and again, it was this job, so I can't come, but it felt like it was his, he had sort of created this internal narrative of where GDP would continue mattering in the way it matters now, regardless of how much, uh, warming you'd see as if the ways one could make money would not be, would not suddenly fall apart in these moments when you would get absolute devastation of the of the north american breadbasket which four degrees warming unquestionably would you know as as this as this report even highlights the, the two degrees is is, is gonna is gonna cause a famine of food shortages so like idea that we could get to four and and still care about these sort of economic areas that have that are no way bound by anything beyond our own lines you know how quickly do do the borders we create stop mattering when when you can't have food you know it, and it was this it was a sort of this felt like that that he his mind was still trapped in this narrative of GDP and 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 the and to go and the, that narrative of GDP carries forward in the other two stories right the economic consideration of whether or not we are going to let a species go extinct you know speaks directly to the concept that you can make enough money that you that that you can somehow ignore the fact that we are killing an entire species um, and then to go back to the first story, the idea, this whole idea of, of, of good faith negotiation centers the idea that it, what matters is the fact that we are making money and therefore we are right to be on this land. You know, in this, in that case, the idea that GDP and econo- economics matter so much that even more important than the actual rights that these people have to land in water. It's, it's, as, it's as if this narrative of, 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 of gross domestic product, of how much money we can make, somehow smooths over all of the actual reality that we live in. And, and it's, it's everywhere. And, and I think that that, that that sort of idea allows us to sort of trip and fall and trip and fall into the place where you get into these conversations around, well, now we actually don't have enough food. And so now we got to keep all these, the, the, the migrants out because we need to protect ourselves. And you fall yourself into ecofascism, which is what we'll sort of cover in the second half with Lauren. And, and, and so I just want to sort of like frame that out. Like each one of these stories is, is in some ways – uh, predicated on the concept that you can make enough money that reality doesn't exist. And and that may be true for the true billionaires who can just go around on their yachts and whatever, but it's definitely not true for the rest of us. And it's a dangerous way to trip and fall into the rest of the world. Um, and so we'll go to music break. We'll come back uh, with Lauren Latour. We're talking about eco-fascism. Uh, we're talking about the, the Koch brothers um, and some more things. So we'll get there. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. 
All right, we are back here on The Green Majority. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners. And I now give you back to Stefan and Dave. Thanks so much. That was a weird way to say thanks so much. Um, we are back in the studio <laughs> with Dave Ostetter, Stefan Ostetter, uh, and Lauren Latour is on the line. Lauren, how are you doing? I'm doing super well. How about y'all? Oh, well, you know, it is a it's a lovely Friday. Um, the weather actually is is a, the the heat broke about like a week ago or two weeks ago here in Toronto, and so uh, so that's going great. Uh, I'm on vacation <laughs> next week, uh, so actually, as a heads up to our listeners, we have a full length interview next week uh, with Jared Kolb, which we'll be playing, um, and so you will hear you hear that about uh, from the outgoing executive director of uh, Cycle Toronto. Um, nine years of uh, of cycle activism, what he's learned. So that's next week. But right now, we're talking about eco fascism. So it's a bit of a switch. So uh, we have in the past on this show discussed <clears throat> the connection between white supremacy and climate denial, as well as environmental harm, since land and resource theft, genocide and racist and classist marginalization have been at the heart of Western industrialism since the beginning, which has in turn fueled the climate crisis. But we must now also consider the fact that environmentalism can very easily become its own kind of racist authoritarianism as attested by the eco-fascist white ethnostate manifestos of recent mass shooters in Christchurch and now El Paso. And as Kate Aronoff pointed out for Descent magazine back at the end of May, it's only really in America that climate change is considered a mostly left-wing issue. And in fact, several center and far-right organizations in Europe are beginning to marry anti-immigration with concern for the environment. Aronoff points to the absurd statements of some EU politicians like Marine Le Pen, who believe that hard borders are somehow environmentally friendly, and that, quote, nomadic people do not care about the environment, since they have no homeland. Far-right European parties, who solidified their bases in the recent election, have seen the success of the Greens, and are increasingly touting themselves as defenders of the environment. And here we can see the necessity of an idea like environmental justice, since inherent in the term itself is recognition of the inextricability of the two ideas, environmentalism and justice. In addition, Tess Owen writing for Vice tells us that the term ecofascism is gaining traction among white nationalists on the internet, who inexplicably believe that immigration is bad for the environment. White nationalists will often, of course, blame immigrants for anything they don't like, and in this case, they've decided that immigrants are responsible for urban sprawl, litter, and the disruption of the natural order. Owen points to Finnish ecologist Penti Linkola, as well as Fox News anchor Tucker Carlson, as public proponents of the idea that immigration causes litter and environmental harm. Just saying the words Tucker Carlson brings a bile up from my stomach into yeah, my tonsils. It's a shame. Uh, Richard Spencer has also expressed concern about the protection of nature. Thus, with the climate crisis worsening, far-right groups have the potential to sway the fearful towards violent authoritarianism. To, to you first, Lauren. Yeah, um, I'm glad we're having a conversation. I feel like it's one that's going to be coming up for us increasingly over the next couple of years. Uh, it's, the term eco-fascism is definitely something that I've sort of heard discussed um, more frequently uh, in the recent past. Um, I guess just for listeners to, to get those sort of like a quick and easy definition, this is just something I pull up the internet. Um, ecofascism is a theoretical, theoretical political model in which totalitarian government would require individuals to sacrifice their own interests 
to the organic whole of nature and which would rely on militarism and expansionism. So um, it's, it's kind of a weird concept to wrap your head around. But um, in some ways, ecofascism can be traced back to uh, like the Third Reich and Hitler and Nazism and, and, and back even further, I'm sure. Um, I know, like, for instance, in, in some of the pieces I read, it was like sort of bringing to the forefront ideas that like Hitler was a vegetarian himself um, and Nazism was like linked with traditional agrarian romanticism and like hostility to urban um, expansion and, and, and urban civilization. Um, and that, and that ultimately ecological ideas are like this essential element of racial rejuvenation. Um, and, and because there is such a tie between nationalism, nationalism and, and, and a sense of place and, and a need to preserve the land that you're on. Um, so these are kind of weird concepts to, to wrap our heads around, but it's, it's sort of increasingly becoming a danger, I think, because we are entering an era where a lot of people are acknowledging the fact of climate crisis. We're seeing this in, in polls where, where more and more across party lines, people agree that climate change is an emergency and a problem that we need to tackle. And I think there is a fear and a, and a very real risk that, especially from the right, we're going to see, okay, climate change is an issue. We need to act on it. The best way to act on it is um, is is by sort of throwing all of our efforts into technology and completely abandoning people and understanding that uh, there, there's this lifeboat analogy, basically, and that the idea is that uh, if a ship is going down, there's only so many people that can fit in the lifeboat, and in order to save humanity, we have to preserve those few lives in the lifeboat and, and, and push everybody else off kind of thing. And and that's sort of a, a fear that, that has been coming to my mind more and more frequently is that this is the kind of politics we're going to see coming out of the right going forward. Yeah. And to me, it, it seems um, and, uh, depressingly inevitable um, uh-huh. uh, because, because at some point you are going to get a, 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 a number of people, it will become so obvious, you know, like the minute that, you know, that Miami is actually underwater, I don't think that, I hope that the, I, I hope that at that point you'll start seeing, you know, the idea, climate change nihilists being in the same realm as, as, as flat earthers, you know, uh, there, I, I, I will, totally believe a certain subset of humanity will believe this forever. I'm not going to pretend this ever, but I think that you'll get to a point where the to win a political position, you would have to at least accept that it exists and have a plan to deal with it. And I think that to me, if you're, if you're, if your motivations are, are to entrench current power, um, and, uh, and, and, and push down these, these sort of groups that you sort of don't like, um, or, or as currently it feels like the, the main goal is just to troll anyone who cares about things. Um, but like if, if, if that's the, if that's the sort of incentive, then, then I think the, then, I th- really do think that that's going to be the switch. I think there's a, a, a good argument I, I saw recently on, on Twitter a couple, a couple weeks ago about the idea that we cannot presume that um, that just convincing these people of climate change is going to get action because they very likely will will respond this way. They'll respond in a in a in an eco fascist position um, and 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 use use the fact that climate change exists as a as a bludgeon. Uh, to to maintain the status quo that they're sort of still pushing for, you know, we're going to talk about the Koch brothers uh, in a second, and I think that's going to be like a a pretty consi- like that's that's sort of the the you know if you want to ex- understand sort of how they wield their power, uh, I would not be surprised if that's sort of the direction they start heading. Um, but uh, but to you, Lauren, sorry. No, no, I I agree with everything you said. It's uh, it's scary at this point, but but I think you're right. I think to a degree it is an an inevitability because um, it 
<laughs> unfortunately, climate change and, and, and the fact that it will bring to the forefront issues like um, uh, climate migrants and climate refugees, and, and it's going to cause a lot of social and societal upheaval, does lend itself really, really well <laughs> to um, sort of providing ex- excuses for, for people to bring fascist and dangerous alt-right politics to the forefront and saying things like, well, the only way to preserve Canada's beautiful uh, forests and mountains and wilderness is to close its borders and to not let anybody else in. And unfortunately, this is the only way we can save the Canadian state and Canadian landscape is by is by closing off our borders and and not welcoming anybody new into the country, no matter how badly they might need to be here. Um that's just sort of like one very sort of easy example to jump to. Um, these are really in-depth concepts that can be explored in, in farther way in, 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 in more ways. But that's just sort of the initial one that comes to mind is, is the big fear I'm harboring right now is that it's going to be used to, to implement really intense border security. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, well, let's, let's get that. We have a sh- little short bit about the Koch brothers. So, so the uh, notorious fossil fuel barons and relentless plutocrats, the Koch brothers, have ditched their oil sands holdings, selling leases to Canadian companies, letting other leases expire, and abandoning their licenses. Energy Alberta regulator spokesperson Sean Roth told Jeffrey Morgan for the Financial Post, quote, The majority of Coke oil sands licenses have been transferred to Paramount Resources Limited. All of the remaining licenses for well sites have been abandoned, which means that they have been permanently sealed, and taken out of service. I, I, I do interested in the abandoned versus permanently sealed and taken out of service. I given abandoned wells such an issue, and permanently sealed and taken out of service is a different thing. Um, but I'll leave that one. Uh, <laughs> I'll leave that. Um, uh, so uh, there's a couple things here, but to you first, Lauren. No, uh, that, that's a good point you made about the difference between abandoned wells and and permanently sealed. But anyway, this is an this is an article that when I first saw it, my first, and, and maybe this is me just looking for things to be excited about, but my very first instinct was like, wait, is this a good story? Because to me, if 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 we're seeing the Koch brothers, a, a behemoth in, in the financial world, canceling and pulling out their holdings in the tar sands, this to me is a bit of a death knell for that industry, that even if, if these people, two of the most two of the wealthiest people in the entire world don't feel that this is an industry that is still viable and, and able to make money for them, that this is, these, these are the rats fleeing from the sinking ship right here. Um, at least that was sort of my first, um, uh, the, the first thing I took away from it. But what about you? Yeah, I think that's definitely the, that, like, they were at one point one of the largest landholders in the oil sands. You know, this is like they were they it's not like they were owned a little bit and then they and they they were one of the largest ones um, and they, they've sold off uh, all, you know, it's upstream leases um, and then and then in this in, in sort of in a band lesson in the heavy they're calling it a heavy oil play. I love it's a part of me lo- that loves to read the financial. Post. You love corporate jargon. <laughs> the, 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 the financial post, because you because it, it guarantees that I'm getting a, a, a thing framed in a very certain way. And as long as I understand that framing, mm. then the rest of it becomes interesting. Interesting, and and the idea that they consider they, they call the oil sense a heavy oil play is just a very like a hilarious way of putting it. Um, heavy oil play sounds like something way more fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, 
the and 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 it's and it was what well, they literally they the, the rest of that one line from the Financial Post is that they are joining a stream of foreign companies exiting the bitumen bearing formation. Um, which all of that is funny. Um, but, but specifically the, the fact that it should not, it should be, it should be alarming to Canadians that the, uh, that the fact that the foreign or foreign companies and, and the Koch brothers, like, like the Koch brothers and others are all leaving the oil sands. Because what that tells me is that they are seeing something that perhaps our misguided patriotism is, 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 is hiding. Um, you know, the idea that the, the federal government here can be like, no, they're still great and we should build a pipeline to get them out as everyone else who's coming, who coming from an external perspective is, is leaving is a very – should be concerning. If I was, you know, if I was someone who was, uh, who was in Alberta, I would be quite concerned by this because like you're, 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 you're running towards the fact that Canada is, is bearing more and more and more of the risk for this heavy oil play. Um, and, and, and that if we, and if we don't recognize that that is a, that, that, that then if you see a shift that we are bearing more and more of the concern we're going to get we're going to get hurt like this is going to go very poorly um and and i think that that th- th- this is an example especially because like you know as you said as you said lauren th- the cook brothers are not concerned about the environment right like they have uh, they're selling what is i believe a a sort of a a a weird offshoot of some of this heavy oil that would like you cannot burn in any of the ma- any of the westernized nations and they're they are still piling it up and selling it to, to India and some other places um, as a way to still make money off some of the scraps of this sort of stuff. Like, they don't care about the environment. This is a this is a, an economic decision, and that should scare us. Uh, Saren, you had a quick second, then I'm going to learn again. Sorry, just really quickly, again, on the same point, which is that if the liberals are actually serious about, you know, quote unquote, doing what's right for Canada and, you know, responsibly dealing with climate change while not throwing our economy into havoc, they'd be talking about this. Yeah. Yeah. This is like, you know, this is, yeah, this is, a, there's a, a bunch of things here, but uh, to Lauren, to you, sorry. Um, no, to me, what this sort of harkens back to is an argument that I actually, I just made the other day when I was talking to somebody about abandoning the TMX pipeline. It's the idea that uh, like the Koch brothers of abandoning their wells and abandoning their holdings in, in, in the tar sands, which at one point I'm seeing here, uh, like equals something the size of Delaware. Like that is how much land <laughs> they owned in the tar sands. It was, yeah. it was the size of Delaware. And, I don't mean Delaware, the small town outside of London, Ontario, and southwestern Ontario. It was like Delaware, the state. Um, but uh, the idea that, that Kinder Morgan abandoned a pipeline, was willing to sell that pipeline for a few billion dollars, when if it had been economically viable and it had been money-making, they would have made far more off of it. Um, yeah, just the idea that, that this, this system is, is no longer viable, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing these people flee this and uh this industry and unfortunately like you said we're going to be left holding the cards we're going to be left with all of these it's an issue that's been talked about before on this on this show that there are going to be thousands of abandoned wells that haven't been sealed off properly that haven't been treated properly we're going to have uh tar sands ponds and tailing ponds full of chemicals that that haven't been cleaned up or sealed or and land that hasn't been rehabilitated 
Um, and, and Canada is going to be left to clean up this mess left by foreign investors at the end of the day. Yeah. And, 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 and the Koch brothers are not the only ones either. And again, what I find interesting uh, consistently about the financial, reading the financial post is a, it's, it's, it's like, I, I dislike the, it's general opinion on things, but you, because of that, you can guarantee that they're not trying to sell you the fact that things are working or not. Right, they're they are they are giving you the the sort of the experience that people are having from from a Monday perspective, and so further down in this in the same article, it talks about MEG Energy and the president CEO Derek Evans, who on his recent uh, company's earning earning call said that they were going to let their own leases uh, on longer term holding expire uh, rather than pay the the escalating rents on the land. So like this is not just one company. This is this is multiple. Like this is a the this is I think if you had seen this from another place, like if you had. If you were, if we were, if you sort of remove the fact that oil is so tied up in this sort of national conversation, and and the in the fact that these sort of the lives of, of 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 so many people are sort of reliant on this industry, if you sort of remove those two pieces and you sort of put it anywhere else in the world, and so you could look at it more with a more sober mind, and sort of saw the fact that you had everyone outside of the you know the the industry leaving it, while one particular player keeps buying up more and more and more. You would ask yourself, what does everyone else know that the one person that the one thing that keeps buying it doesn't, right? You you aren't going to think that oh, this one person has really figured this out, and the rest of these like there's these are the companies that are meant are trying to have a fiduciary responsibility to make as much money as possible, and if all of them are leaving and putting the the onus further and further more in the hands of Canadian companies and Canada itself, you have to ask yourself what is happening, and it, it, it and to me as a that's uh, like that should be a question that should be posed to every leader um uh, in every and every and ev- like ex- have like if we in a climate debate this question should be asked in my opinion like you have to find out what is their plan to transition these workers because if you don't have a plan to transition these workers then you are basically saying that we are going to run this into the ground and then we'll leave them uh, and that to me does not sound like caring about their livelihoods. That sounds like you're trying to eat out every little bit of drop for whatever you can and then, and then abandon them, just like the wills. We really only need debates with two questions. That one, and ask them to define climate change. That's it. That's the entire debate. Um, uh, so we are coming up to the end of the, uh, end of the section. So I wanted to throw to you, Lauren, any, any last thoughts, any call-outs? Uh, what do you got? Um, nothing big. I think I would just invite people sort of circling back to, to the initial thing we were, or I, I was talking with you all about today. Um, I would invite listeners to just spend a little bit of time researching, um, and reading up on, on ecofascism and sort of deep environmental ties to, to the alt-right. Um, because I think, like I said, these are issues that we're going to see repeatedly come up again. And as an environmental movement, um, as people who, who are, who are primarily on, on the, the, the center left spectrum, who skew towards the compassionate, we need to figure out ways to counteract this discourse um, going into uh, not only this election, but, but the years to come. So read yeah. up, babies. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Lauren. Uh, we'll be uh, back after a short music break to talk about energy utilities and all the ways, all, all the things about energy utilities. We had a lot of energy news coming up. So we'll go there. Stay on what we listen to. Jim's in trouble. All right, we're into the home stretch here. You're listening to The Green Majority here live if you're in Toronto on the podcast or one of our very appreciated community radio partners. If you are not, uh, we are getting right back into, as I said, the home stretch here of the show. We just have a little bit of time left, so Dave, you're going to get us started. Please take it away. Jim's in trouble. 
He's going to jail. Wow. That's, uh... Just wanted to finish that line that that song was done. <laughs> um, so, yes, I have a whole bunch of different stuff on uh, utilities in the United States. So, but, but this kind of thing is, is illustrative, generally, I think. It's not just uh, locally viable. So in Indiana, as uh, Dan Garino reported for ICN back in April, the state of Indiana's third largest utility, by the name of NIPSCO, decided to move away from coal last year and towards renewables since wind and solar had become cheaper than coal. They calculated that they could save $4 billion over 30 years. <clears throat> Former EPA head Scott Pruitt, and proud sycophant of the Trump administration, was then hired to lobby the state in support of coal, but has apparently failed. This is because renewables can simply provide cheaper energy than coal and are not at risk from volatile fossil fuel prices. Indiana currently gets almost 72% of its electricity from coal, and according to some experts, the same kind of shift will soon happen all over the U.S. Part of the problem with coal is that it costs a lot of money to keep production in line with clean air standards. But in this case, even natural gas could not compete economically. In addition, Emily Hopkins and Sarah Bowman report for the Indianapolis Star that utilities in the state are even beginning to compete with consumers, more and more of whom are generating their own electricity, such that whole communities are becoming electrically self-sufficient. Utilities are therefore having to reinvent themselves, even as they've tried to fight this democratization of the grid. Thus, utilities in Indiana could end up becoming more focused on electricity transportation rather than generation. And in Indianapolis, an evangelical pastor by the name of Mike Bowling is fighting the removal of low-income long-term locals out of their community by creating cheap housing options, but has also had a run-in with a utility company over a recent attempt to bring cheap solar energy to these communities as well. His community development group is currently at a standstill with the utility Indianapolis Power and Light, who are currently not letting a low-income senior's residents reap the benefits of their solar project by forcing them to sell their energy to the grid, and this at a discount. The residents would benefit from either being allowed to use the energy themselves or being able to sell it to the grid at retail prices, but both of these avenues are being blocked. Yeah, so the, I think there's probably a, enough at some point to, to really dive into how uh, utilities will become uh, or are right now incredibly important players in all of this. You know, I think if you want to talk about, a, if we're really going to see a big speeding up and action taken, uh, a lot of that will come from a pretty significant reform of how energy utilities operate. Um, or, or in in action in pushing uh, for because like, like versions of this has have happened all over the place. The the Ontario Green Energy Act was in large ways hampered by the fact that the Ontario and the Ontario Power uh, did not want to build as much infrastructure exactly. um, around uh, to, to to connect these small microgrids. Okay. Um, and and so it is it is consistently like, and I think it's also why when you hear a lot about sort of the Green New Deal, a big part of that includes massive upgrades to energy transition in energy grid system. That's a huge part of this work. And mm -hmm. conveniently, also something that you actually need a lot of engineers for. So when you think about where you know where workers in in in, in oil could go, uh, this kind of transition, um, you know, it's obviously not the same as electrical versus other stuff, but there's a, there's a skill set of engineering that's overlapping there. Uh, but let's keep moving on to Wisconsin. So some Wisconsin residents, <clears throat> meanwhile, 
are also fighting for clean energy and a democratization of the grid. Chris Hubbard reports for Madison.com, for instance, on some efforts by residents to generate their own power through solar, run things like their freezers and televisions on timers, and only use vacuum cleaners when the sun is shining. At the same time, some of these folks are upset that major utilities, who have profited off of free carbon emissions for decades, are now going to profit off the solution. One of these residents is Rob Danielson, who thinks that such projects don't even do very much to reduce carbon, while sending profits to utility uh, shareholders who do not live in the communities where big solar projects are built. We thus have the delineation of two potential power-generating paths, often referred to as the hard and soft path. The hard path is centralized power generated and controlled by utilities, and the other is decentralized microgrids run by individuals and communities. While the latter may be better for reducing carbon long-term, sticking with the centralized path for now means that green energy transitions can happen faster, more in line with the timescale needed to address the radical and immediate problem of climate change. Yeah, we've done a lot of talk around around hard path and soft path energy grids, and um, I, it is a important thing to understand. I think actually, from a uh, overarching, if you want to understand sort of what future worlds could look like and how we could really do this, um, and especially honestly, when you think about uh, what kind of leapfrog technologies could be uh, could be brought to. Uh, brought to other, uh, you know, to, to places that are sort of still, you know, one of the arguments often is that that these developing nations are going to are going to scale in a way that will massively increase their carbon emissions, and it's They're like going to have to burn stuff to, yeah, to to develop exactly, and and then these types of soft path energy grids, which you can build up now and build up quickly, you know, it, solar power in India is is an example of of, of how you can do this differently mm-hmm. and and set up systems that are totally you know decentralized but very effective, mm-hmm. um, and so it's it's important to note that like in some of the systems we are now where all of the things are already we're, we're, it's very hard in 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 sort of places like like canada really um especially at least in toronto because of how much infrastructure already exists it's hard to well, change a ton of infrastructure when it's already there mm-hmm. but in many many places that are that that when you're building it up you're able to leapfrog all of the sort of older technology and really add immediately what you actually need and and you can do away with the rest of the stuff um, and so that sort of that conversation is 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 man, I, I could nerd out about this forever, but let's move on to Tennessee. So the utility for the city of Memphis is considering ditching the Tennessee Valley Authority in favor of renewable sources. Nashville and Knoxville are also pressing the TVA to move more quickly to renewables. The TVA is a product of FDR's New Deal, which created the federally owned corporation in the 30s to develop and maintain infrastructure along the Tennessee Valley. Memphis figures it could save millions of dollars while transitioning to 100% renewable energy by 2050. Tennessee currently has no renewable energy standards. Uh, James Bruggers reports for ICN that Memphis would represent a 10% loss in customer base for the TVA, and that Paducah, Kentucky's electricity rates skyrocketed after it left the TVA to invest in a new coal plant in Illinois. It's incredible that we still exist in a world where American states are investing in new coal plants. Like that has got to be one of the more 
Well, that was a few years ago. Well, st- honestly, like, like if you invested in a new coal plant after Ontario had phased out all of its coal plants, I think you're you're you were betting on a losing market. Like, you know, like I think, and like maybe they'll pick up some cheaper ones because because the, the actual market for coal will, will is decre- is decreasing, um, and and obviously there's still a bunch of places like you know Australia is still very coal dependent, China is still very coal dependent. So well, still- look what happened; their rates went up. Right, exactly. They invested in coal, and they they're paying more now. Yeah, and so like maybe maybe we should just you know if we're gonna let the market decide, let the market decide. <laughs> or if you're gonna let, uh, or if you're gonna, or if you wanna do be you know be interventionist, be interventionist. But don't intervene for the benefit of coal companies. That seems like the most I don't know. Like and yet you're seeing this everywhere. This is the there's a larger conversation there too, but it's pretty consistent and weird difficult. Sarah. So, so I just uh, I've, I'm wrapping up my personal theme for the show today because you keep I keep getting close onto it, which is a here's the last thing I'll say in it, but I tie up my personal com- uh, my personal thing for the day, which is uh, what Justin Trudeau could do if he was serious, which is talk about these things. I've been saying that over and over again, but here's the bluff, right? Uh, the voters, a lot of conservative voters, don't legitimately don't believe the science, and we could that's a different conversation. But the oil companies and sheer do. So here's what you do: you call the bluff. You pass a law saying, great, if there's any climate impacts, if we don't hit them and there's any overcost, you're sure there isn't going to be. You're saying this isn't a problem. Cool. We're going to pass a law where if you're wrong, the only the top 1% and the oil companies pay for every cent that the government is owed. Billions of dollars. But it's not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen. Here's the thing. The voters won't know anything, but Sheer and the oil companies absolutely know that that is a terrible deal. And he will have billionaires calling Sheer's office all day saying, you dare not you better stand down right that's the thing that gets me so darn frustrated because none of these politicians that claim to talk about climate change even the ones that sound like they're saying the right things are doing anything to act as if they themselves believe it and i think that's what i'm upset about today Stefan. <laughs> that's fair we exist we, we still exist in a world overwhelmingly identified by the idea that gdp is king and that's i think how that narrative impacts the whole thing but let's go to michigan so tracy samilton is reporting for michigan radio <clears throat> that on the documents that the state's utilities have been recently required to publish regarding their plans to reduce carbon emissions. She compares the plans of the utilities Consumers Energy and DTE Energy. Consumers plans to deliver a 92% reduction in carbon emissions by 2040 by shutting down its coal plants while adding no new natural gas, investing in low-carbon energy, giving customers rebates if they make their homes more efficient, and trying to make people use less less electricity when demand is high. Uh, The utility suggests that 100% zero carbon will for them require technologies that are not currently cheap enough or even currently available. DTE Energy, for its part, plans also to shut down all coal by uh, 2040, but its plan to bring in renewables is to let customers pay more to allow their houses to be powered entirely by wind or solar, and then using this trend to expand renewables rather than just building them up front. They will, also, they will also not employ efficiency or demand response to the same degree and will rely more on natural gas. This could leave DTE out of the loop if our collective response to climate change turns out to be of the scale that appears to be required. Yeah, so let's, let's, let, we have two more stories. I want to make sure we get to all of them. So let's, let's get to Louisiana. So uh, Sabrina Shankman for ICN reported back in May that the state of Louisiana has developed a plan to help residents migrate inland to avoid ocean rise and a sinking delta. 
The plan reads, quote, Louisiana is in the midst of an existential crisis. Its response to this crisis can either lead to a prosperous renaissance or to a continued and sustained cycle of disaster and recovery. End quote. The state has weathered huge hurricanes and oil spills, and is looking to address this through building infrastructure further inland, elevating houses, preparing inland communities to accept greater influxes of residents, and investing in community resilience. And one more news story, China. And uh, China, of course, recently invested $23 billion U.S. in an offshore wind project. Irana Slav writes for oilprice.com, quote, the renewables bet, however, is not without challenges. One of, the, uh, one of these are the generous subsidies in solar that prompted a boom in this energy industry segment. The boom was so intense, Beijing had to roll back some of the subsidies as they threatened to cost it a lot more than originally expected. So earlier this year, the authorities said they would only approve new solar projects if their cost is on par with coal capacity. In wind and solar both, China's renewables industry faces another problem. So-called curtailment, or the waste of electricity produced by wind and solar farms, because the grid can't take it all. To solve that, China is building supergrids. End quote. China has also, however, however, been releasing thousands of tons of CFCs for the past several years. The gas of which, uh, the gas which was outlawed after it put a hole in the ozone layer. Yeah, and so I think if I had to sort of, you know, draw a line between all of these different stories about each how each individual jurisdiction uh, is trying to deal with this sort of this question, and I, I think it it is interesting to note just how you know wide ranging uh, and overall uh, impactful that the climate change is affecting every single everywhere in the world, obviously, and these conversations are happening everywhere in the world, and. And each individual location has its own sort of history that they're trying to grapple with. But there's still this constant – that grappling remains still the most ongoing and consistent thing. You know, each – whether or not it's – whether some places you're seeing it, seeing them go, you know, still stick hard to coal because of the, sort of their own, their own history. You know, you see China doing this sort of constant uh, two-sided thing where it's massively investing in the, in the, in the, in the solutions while still – uh, while still continually growing um, its its own you know, its own emissions and its own uh, in you know now CFCs which is real bad, um, but uh, but this this type of difference between the two of these things sort of indicates just how wide ranging and how different I think the conversation needs to be in all in in every different time I think you you need to find a way to talk to the to your own community. And, and to understand the history that exists within your own community, um, it's to to convey the need for this kind of action in its own way, um, and I think that as as we move forward, this sort of deconstruction of the idea that GDP is everything and that and that this kind of money thing is everything is the only way to begin having these conversations in a way that are useful. You know, how can we talk to someone in Louisiana in the same way you might talk to someone, you know, um, in, in, in any of these other scenarios? And some of them is, is really sometimes is, we're lucky here in Ontario in that, you know, that so much of our energy grid is, 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 was, was hydro already that we sort of by default were doing better in some ways. And so we can sort of sit back as, as Ford has, has wanted us to do and act as if we're already solved all the problems. Um, and 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 or we can or we can sort of embrace the fact that we are lucky in that way. So we need to find other solutions in other ways to really embrace this sort of larger solution. 
And so uh, along with, with Lauren's call to sort of begin to start thinking about how we can combat ecofascism, I would put a secondary call of how can we start breaking down the narrative that we can just money our way out of every problem and that money in that GDP needs to be the way that we frame everything. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a huge task and it's clearly exists across the world. Um, but I think those two questions are, are really important. Um, and with that, uh, we will be back next week with an interview from Jared Kolb of Executive Director, Outgoing Executive Director of Cycle Toronto. Uh, and then we'll be back with the news a week later. Cycle Toronto? Cycle Toronto. Cycle Toronto. Yes. Uh, talking about activism. And so have a great week, everyone. We'll see you all next week. Uh, and enjoy the sunshine.